From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. One of the worst humanitarian crises in recent history is only getting worse. The conflict in Syria means the number of refugees will double from over 2 million to 4 million by the end of this year, says the UN Refugee Agency. More than 100,000 people have died from the conflict. And a deal forcing the Assad regime to hand over its chemical weapons for destruction is hampered by delays and obstacles by the regime. Well, given all of this, 57-year-old Haj Muteya doesn't understand why the United States won't act to protect civilians in Syria. America is the most powerful country in the world. It has an army from where it can hit anyone anywhere. So therefore, why this neglect? Are the Syrian people valueless? It used to be that world powers could more easily turn a blind eye to humanitarian crises. But then came Rwanda, an instance where 800,000 people were killed in just 100 days back in 1994. And the world did nothing. Since then, the international community has said it will pay more attention. The United Nations adopted a principle called the responsibility to protect. It says world powers need to consider doing something if they see mass atrocities being committed in another country. What they do, though, is up to them. And with Syria, there's no clear answer. There is certainly a case to be made for an intervention. We're going to need a stabilization force, thousands of peacekeepers, billions of dollars. Yes, responsibility to protect, but also responsibility to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. In this next hour, we ask, are the United States and other Western powers doing enough to solve the humanitarian crisis in Syria? How has Rwanda and other past conflicts influenced our decision to act? And if we don't act now, what does that mean for our collective commitment to protect human rights in other countries? At a rehabilitation center in Lebanon a few months ago, a few miles from the Syrian border, some 80 rebel fighters are being treated. Reporter Ben Gilbert brings us the scene. 20-year-old Qasem Aoud is not optimistic. He was hit by shrapnel in both arms when a rocket exploded near his firing position in May of 2013. His thoughts on the situation in Syria? Miserable. It's miserable. Yeah, why? Because nobody helped us. Nobody. We fight all the world. Nobody stands behind us, beside us. Nobody at all. No, of course, um, of course it should help, but they won't help. Are you angry about that? No. No? No. We're used to this. That's Ben Gilbert in Lebanon. Since we recorded that interview last summer, the Assad regime was charged with launching a chemical weapons attack on Ghouta in the suburbs of Damascus. The images are gut-wrenching. Bodies sprawled across clinic floors, many of the victims' children, even infants. Others still fighting. The attack left hundreds of Syrian men, women, and children dead, some in their sleep. A deal worked out by the U.S. and Russia forced the Assad regime to hand over its chemical weapons and the means of making them. If we can join together and eliminate Syria's chemical weapons, we would not only save lives, but we would reduce the threat to the region and reinforce an international standard, an international norm. On the ground, the fighting grinds on, with opposition forces less united, more fractured than ever, and new reports of infighting every week. Meanwhile, millions of refugees find themselves battling the cold of winter. 
In Washington, we're joined now by Michael Abramowitz. He's a former Washington Post reporter and editor and now the director of the Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Welcome. Michael, I believe more than two million Syrians now are refugees in countries that border Syria. And I'm wondering what kind of effect that is having on those countries and on the, and the refugee situation. If you could just describe it, what's happening on the ground. Sure. This is probably one of the worst refugee situations in modern history. I think uh, you have to go back years to maybe the Bangladesh crisis in the early 1970s or perhaps Cambodia after the killing fields in the late 70s to really see something of this dimensions. It's not only the 2 million refugees that have been created, but it's the 7 million who've been internally displaced. And the issue is that the neighboring countries, particularly Turkey, Jordan and now Iraq have uh, been heavily burdened by the need to care for these refugees and the influx of refugees pose a potential destabilizing influence on these countries. Those of you who are in favor of using this principle, how do you get across the idea that it should be invoked in a situation such as Syria? Well, I think that R2P... Whether or not it's invoked or not, it applies to a situation like Syria or South Sudan or the Central African Republic. I mean, it basically says that the obligation to prevent atrocities is a responsibility of the sovereign government in question. So it's the first group in Syria that bears a responsibility to protect is the Assad government. But if, if they are unwilling or unable to prevent atrocities or in the fact of Syria they're perpetrating atrocities themselves then there's a responsibility that falls on the larger international community. That's what the international community has unanimously said, and in fact, that's what R2P is about. But there's also a kind of a national security concern. And if you're looking at the potential destabilization of countries like Jordan, which is a strong U.S. ally, uh, Turkey has handled this better, but they're also under strains too, that these situations of mass atrocities uh, actually can concretely affect our national security interests by destabilizing our allies. And that's another reason, in addition to the humanitarian reason, which we have to really try to work hard to prevent these atrocities from taking place. Has it been talked about recently with regards to Syria uh, in any serious way in America's leadership circles, do you know? Well, I think, first of all, Syria is very much of an R2P situation. R2P is a concept that is designed to help prevent mass atrocities, genocide, ethnic cleansing, war crimes, crimes against humanity. And very definitely, Syria qualifies. I think that what's fair to say also is that in the U.S. context, U.S. government officials have been reluctant to talk about Syria in terms of R2P for a variety of different reasons. I think partly because they are worried that it will obligate them to do certain things that they may not want to do. To me, Syria really points out the need for much earlier efforts to intervene. You know, if the world had been able to broker a deal or tried to ease Assad out of power three or four years ago, we could have avoided all this. So I think the point is is that once you get deeper and deeper into conflict, your solutions, the ways that you can deal with this become circumscribed. So I think what it really says to me is that early intervention can be cheaper, it can be diplomatic, it can be non-military, and it can avoid the need for military action. What Syria shows is that we're now deep into the civil war, and you're really left with a lot of bad options for dealing with it. 
Is there anything the United States should be doing more of with regards to the refugees in these other countries? Well, I think the United States has been doing a lot to help financially support the refugees. I think millions of people are alive receiving life-sustaining support uh, because of U.S. financial support. I think the United States is the largest single contributor to keeping refugees alive and also helping people inside Syria. I think the issue that I think is going to get more attention in the next year is whether or not the United States should allow more Syrians to come to the United States. Because I think there's going to be a big push from the United Nations to help resettle some of the Syrian refugees in third countries. And I think uh, at this point, there's been a relatively small number of Syrians who have been settled in the United States. And I would expect there to be more pressure and more lobbying on the part of the United Nations to, to have refugees actually resettle inside the United States. Where has it been successful recently? Well, I say this cautiously because I think, you know, situations are uh, lots of different things go into this. Um, but, you know, you look at a place like Kenya, where in 2007, there was a large amount of ethnic killing after the elections in uh, 2007. Uh, since that time, the world knew that there would be elections again in Kenya uh, in 2013. And there was a huge amount of work by the Kenyans themselves primarily, but also by the world, by the neighbors of Kenya, by the United States, by the European Union, to really focus on peace building, to really try to preempt violence. And the elections took place relatively peacefully a few months ago. Michael, we have two uh, emerging problems in Africa and South Sudan and the Central African Republic in terms of civil war and I'm wondering if uh, the responsibility to protect is being invoked in either one of those situations. Well, the responsibility to protect is very much applicable to both situations. What's sort of interesting, if you step back, is that you've got three situations in the world right now. Syria, we've been talking about, also the Central African Republic and South Sudan, which are really crisis situations in terms of human displacement and in terms of uh, potential for mass atrocities. So... Anytime you have a country like CAR or South Sudan where there is this kind of massive displacement, where there's been kind of a breakdown of, of government order, and you have also sectarian divisions, which uh, mean that individual groups could be targeted, you have a real risk of atrocities. So we are quite fearful of uh, what's happening uh, in both countries, in both CAR and South Sudan, uh, South Sudan, it's interesting because for a while, I think some people had looked at South Sudan as a relative R2P success story because about two years ago, the country became independent after a long diplomatic process. And there were some fears that independence and the elections that led to independence would become violent. That didn't happen because there was a lot of focus on preventing violence in South Sudan from Europe, from the United States, from the neighboring African countries. It was really seen as a R2P situation. And so we thought we had dodged the bullet there, but now it's gotten to be very dangerous. And uh, I think there is very serious worries about future atrocities and atrocities that have already taken place. But I guess what that says to me is that you can't just dive in there, ensure that the election is relatively safe, and then leave, that R2P, the responsibility to protect, has to be an ongoing effort. Absolutely. That's a really good point, Madeline, that, that responsibility to protect applies all the time in every country in the world, and you have to be really vigilant. 
That's Michael Abramowitz. He's the director of the Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. You're listening to Syria and the Responsibility to Protect on America Abroad. What responsibility do you think the U.S. and the international community have to protect civilians in Syria and elsewhere around the globe? Let us know your thoughts. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Syria and the Responsibility to Protect on America Abroad. We go now for more perspectives on how the responsibility to protect should work in a case like Syria. Now that intervention on humanitarian grounds is codified in the U.N. mandate, I asked Mark Danner at the New York Review of Books what that means for Syria. Are there any thresholds, red lines, if you will, when it comes to intervening on a humanitarian basis? Or is it a case-by-case basis? Um, Does it have to be particularly horrific? Does there have to be a certain number of people killed or a certain number of people displaced? Well, I think we'd like to consider that one red line when it comes to intervention is genocide. The U.S. is a signatory, as are most nations, to the Genocide Convention And theoretically, if genocide is taking place, other nations have an obligation to intervene to stop it. One of the problems is the definition of genocide is rather complicated and somewhat broad. It has to do with the intention to destroy an entire people. And very often, including in Bosnia and in Rwanda, people disagree on whether genocide is actually happening. In Rwanda, the United States ultimately admitted that genocide was probably happening, but dismissed the notion that it compelled U.S. action. But I'd say that the red line is probably genocide. And when we get to it, that debate perhaps might begin to happen when it comes to Syria. You have people claiming that this is a genocidal war in Syria, although it doesn't seem to fit the traditional definition of genocide. I'd say that's probably a red line. And the fact is, in Syria, there are very few good choices when it comes to intervention. Understandably, the United States is leery and weary of getting into a protracted foreign crisis, especially in the Middle East. But remember Bosnia and Rwanda? The evidence of atrocities, man. Kigali Hospital can't cope. The casualty ward is packed full of people with horrific open wounds from knives and machetes. Every few hours, another boatload of corpses is pulled up onto the beach at Dimu. Fishermen put them into bags and throw them unceremoniously into a trailer. They're reminders that quick and decisive international intervention can prevent mass killings, and that even belated intervention, in the case of Bosnia, can be better than nothing. I think one of the most shocking things about this genocide was uh, the sheer scale and speed of the killing. I was in one town, uh, Kibuye, which is in the far west of the country, and um, shortly before I got there, there had been a massacre in the church in which 10,000 people were murdered in the church in a single day. And the following day, another 10,000 were murdered in the town stadium. A 2004 frontline documentary, Ghosts of Rwanda, details how fast that genocide unfolded and how little anyone on the ground could do to stop it. Tutsis emerged from the hospital building where they'd been hiding for three days. They said they were surrounded by the militias, that some of them had already been killed. When it was clear the soldiers weren't going to help, the refugees appealed to the journalists. (laughs) 
and we heard the shooting at the moment we left. So it was clear for me that hell starts for them. Prudence Bushnell was serving as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs during the genocide in Rwanda back in 1994. She and her team tried to appeal to the U.S. military to jam the radio signals in Rwanda, which Hutu extremists were using to spread propaganda and fuel the genocide. I come back to the fact that I was given wide latitude in terms of strategies to stop the killing as long as I didn't do anything meaningful to stop the killing. This clip from Radio Mil Colleen calls out to fellow Hutus to, quote, exterminate the cockroaches and the people of the world will not come to judge us. But without endorsements from the top U.S. foreign policy officials, either the Secretary of State, Warren Christopher at the time, or the head of the National Security Council, Anthony Lake, the military declined to find a way to jam the signals. U.S. inaction in the case of Rwanda is one of the darkest moments in the history of U.S. foreign policy. And the reason for the inaction? Rwanda was just not a foreign policy priority, something that then-National Security Advisor Anthony Lake told PBS in an interview for the documentary Ghosts of Rwanda. Uh, I think the problem here uh, for me, for the president, uh, for most of us at senior levels, uh, was that it never became a serious issue. We never uh, came to grips with what in retrospect should have been a central issue of do we do much more to insist that the international community intervene and go out and find the troops that are necessary or even contemplate uh, an American intervention itself. Uh, That issue just never arose. Clearly, in the case of Syria, the issue of intervention has been raised. I can understand why the White House decided not to make a decision about Syria. Prudence Bushnell. I can understand because I've been in the bureaucracy. And every foreign policy decision is based in good part on domestic political considerations and um, international pressure. The White House has made the decision that it has not been in our national interest, certainly not to intervene with boots on the ground, as they say. Um, what I miss, and I, I miss this from President Obama's foreign policy in general, is I miss a sense of what it is the United States stands for as to ultimately what our vision is, what we are striving for as a major leader in the international community. And then there was Bosnia, the other major humanitarian crisis of the early 1990s. When it became increasingly clear that ethnic cleansing was going on there, the United States vacillated. 8,000 Muslim men from the small town of Srebrenica in eastern Bosnia were slaughtered around here in July 1995 by the Bosnian Serb army, while the UN and the world looked on. It was Europe's worst massacre since World War II. As with Syria, the White House knew what was going on in Bosnia, but waited to act. The conflict started when George H.W. Bush was president. We are not going to get bogged down in some guerrilla warfare. And I don't care what the pressures are. 
It wasn't until 1995, when President Clinton was in office, and after tens of thousands of civilians had been killed, that the United States and its allies intervened. Here's the now well-known exchange between CNN correspondent Christian Amanpour and President Clinton on Bosnia. Why, in the absence of a policy, have you allowed the U.S. and the West to be held hostage to those who do have a clear policy, the Bosnian Serbs? And do you not think that the constant flip-flops of your administration on the issue of Bosnia sets a very dangerous precedent and would lead people to take you less seriously than you would like to be taken? No, but speeches like that may make them take me less seriously than I'd like to be taken. There have been no constant flip-flops, madam. I ran for president saying that I would do my best to limit ethnic cleansing and to see the United States play a more active role in resolving the problem in Bosnia. I asked Mark Danner, who covered the Bosnian conflict closely for the New York Review of Books, what was going on. I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit of background there in terms of why we waited so long to intervene, and then what precipitated the ultimate intervention. The debate about Bosnia, it's interesting to me, reflects, I think, uh, later debates, including the, the present one about Syria. You can divide it into two parts. One is realist reasons, reasons having to do with stark American interests. And the second is humanitarian interests. Um, is the U.S. obliged to intervene when people, innocent people many times, civilians, are being massacred? Does the United States have an interest to intervene to protect the innocent? This debate waged for years while thousands of Bosnians were killed. And finally, the U.S. intervened in a sense in 1995-96 because the Clinton administration found itself forced to. Forced to because President Clinton was up for re-election in 1996 and getting a lot of pressure on Bosnia from his opponent, Bob Dole. The diagnosis of the conflict in Bosnia from a political standpoint was that this was age-old ethnic hatreds about which nothing could be done. John Western, currently a professor at Mount Holyoke College, he was an analyst at the State Department in 1992 at the beginning of the atrocities. Every day he read through thousands of documents depicting horrific acts in Bosnia. For those of us who were analysts on the ground, uh, the conflict looked a lot more like an elite-driven highly coordinated campaign of ethnic cleansing and genocide. December 1992. Bosnia's capital, Sarajevo, was under attack. The Bosnian Serbs shelled the city, cut the power, and blocked the roads. Snipers were everywhere. He and other State Department analysts were tasked with figuring out whether this was, in fact, genocide. The problem was the Genocide Convention itself did not give very clear guidance. Even if they could prove this was genocide, there was no guarantee that the U.S. would be expected to act. The Genocide Convention requires members to prevent genocide within their own borders, but... There's no obligation to respond to mass atrocity violence or genocide uh, if it's happening in another state. And it's out of that kind of limitation of the Genocide Convention that R2P, or the responsibility to protect, emerged, um, moving from a condition under which we can observe, watch, express moral indignation, 
and move it towards an affirmative response. By October 1993, U.S. troops on a humanitarian mission in Somalia became embroiled in the power struggles of a local warlord. That led to the now well-known Black Hawk Down incident, in which some of the bodies of 18 dead U.S. soldiers were dragged through the streets by Somalis. It's an incident that's been the subject of many films and documentaries, including this one from the History Channel. October 4th, 1993. America awakens to images of horror. My fellow Americans, today I want to talk with you about our nation's military involvement in Somalia. And as a result of that, the administration almost quickly concluded that it wasn't going to do anything additional in Bosnia. The Black Hawk Down incident provided the Clinton administration with a reason not to intervene in Bosnia. And when John Western's memo arguing that genocide was indeed taking place in Bosnia was passed on to the Clinton White House, again, nothing was done. So Western resigned in protest. By the summer of 1993, I made a decision that... uh you know, I could probably do better trying to end the conflict than working in the U.S. government. That was two years before the U.S. decided to use force. And when U.S.-led NATO airstrikes were finally approved, Western says... In August of 1995, the war stopped on a dime. NATO's use of force was immediately successful in compelling the Serbs to see that they had no good options but to sign the Dayton Peace Accords. When those accords were signed, the war ended. And while opponents of intervention had long pointed out the risks of military action, NATO's success showed that sometimes decisive military force could be used to stop mass atrocities and protect civilians. Christian Amanpour, who had harshly questioned Clinton on his flip-flopping and lack of decisive action on Bosnia, had this final note. The truth of the matter is that later, a year later, the United States did lead a successful end to the Bosnian War, and the peace holds until today. You're listening to Syria and the responsibility to protect on America Abroad. Coming up, how to assess the strength and relevance of responsibility to protect today. To learn more about this mandate and to see photographs of Syrian refugees in Lebanon, visit our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Syria and the Responsibility to Protect on America Abroad. With the conflict in their country escalating, more and more Syrians are taking refuge in neighboring countries. 37-year-old Serene Malas left Syria in February and is now living in Beirut, Lebanon. Reporter Ben Gilbert met her there and asked her about her thoughts on U.S. intervention in Syria. Serene was afraid Syrian security services were after her because of her support for the opposition. Now, she goes back and forth to Damascus, but her home is in Beirut. She says that at the beginning of the Syrian uprising, she was opposed to foreign intervention in Syria. Yeah, we were opposed to Western intervention because it's like a, a taboo to us. It's always perceived as treason. It's always perceived as you shouldn't be doing that. Let's fix it together. But sometimes when you're dying, you can go to your enemy to save you. So, so now it's like a dilemma with us. I'm not saying I'm with Western intervention. No, I'm one of the first people who was against it. But the truth is, they're the only ones that can stop this. But you, you think that the West should have intervened and taken out Assad, like Damascus? Like they did in Libya. In Libya, it finished uh, very quickly. We didn't want them to intervene because we didn't want people to die. People are dying. There are over 200,000 people dying, and people getting detained, and it's going on and on. When is it going to stop? 
Do you get my point? We don't want people to die. We don't want the West to intervene, but there's no other way. Serene is referring to the case of the 2011 U.S. military intervention in Libya to remove strongman Muammar Gaddafi. The Libyan case became the strongest validation of the responsibility to protect since it was created. The eight-year-old mandate calls on world powers to try to prevent mass atrocities such as ethnic cleansing and genocide. In the name of that principle, the U.S. and its NATO allies used limited airstrikes to prevent the Libyan dictator from carrying out his threat to slaughter civilians. It was, says Richard Williamson, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations Human Rights Commission. The first time in the Security Council, they actually invoked the words responsibility to protect in a resolution to uh, dealing with this crisis and then voted to authorize an intervention. In the case of Libya, it became clear to the international community fairly early on that non-military means would not be enough to stop mass atrocities. In early 2011, the rebel force challenging Muammar Gaddafi was made up primarily of citizens, teachers, students, oil workers, police, and some professionally trained soldiers. They rallied around frustration with chronic economic problems and a desire for greater political freedoms. Their resolve was strengthened by events in nearby Tunisia and Egypt. The revolutionary movements that have come to be known as the Arab Spring. The roar of the crowd says it all. After 18 days, President Hosni Mubarak has resigned. In reaction, Gaddafi went after protesters and civilians. It's the first real opposition the pro-democracy forces have faced in the past 24 hours. They've swept along the coast, claiming town after town. His soldiers systematically raped women in their homes. He attempted to starve people into submission by destroying food supplies and cutting off water and power to the city of Misrata. And he went on national television and threatened to hunt rebels down and kill them. You are the spark. Come out of your homes. Just attack them in their dens. Ed Luck is the former special advisor to United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and currently dean of the University of San Diego's Joan B. Kroc School of Peace Studies. Luck remembers the Libyan leader making blood-chilling pronouncements. When Gaddafi talked about his political opponents as being cockroaches, the word that was used in Rwanda, uh, when he talked about the blood flowing in the streets of Benghazi, we took him very seriously at the U.N. About a month into the uprising in Libya, the U.N. Security Council voted to authorize NATO airstrikes against Gaddafi's forces in March 2011. Then French President Nicolas Sarkozy and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton announced the strikes from Paris. Today, we are intervening in Libya under a mandate from the U.N. Security Council alongside our partners in particular, our Arab partners. And we are doing this in order to protect the civilian population from the murderous madness of a regime that by killing its own people has lost all legitimacy. The first sorties in a campaign to stop Gaddafi's onslaught. French fighter aircraft take off from Dijon Air Base. Their target, pro-Gaddafi armored vehicles near the opposition-held city of Benghazi. Now, America has unique capabilities, and we will bring them to bear to help our European and Canadian allies and Arab partners stop further violence against civilians, including through the effective implementation of a no-fly zone.
many people at the time thought was going to be a precedent for how R2P would work in the future. Stuart Patrick is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and says of Libya... There was a relatively clean intervention, uh, at least in the beginning. There was a NATO-led coalition. There was Arab League diplomatic support and actually some participation from Arab countries. And then, obviously, Gaddafi was, uh, was removed. We will announce to the world... We announced announce to the world the, that Muammar Gaddafi has been killed. Men in the Libyan city of Sirte jostled around the body of Muammar Gaddafi, lying shirtless and bloodied on the ground. But that jubilation didn't last long. Observers such as Aaron David Miller at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars say, yes, Libya was a validation for the responsibility to protect mandate, but it was successful because the military campaign was relatively easy. Libya was low-hanging fruit in the sense that the intervention there, in the sense that Libya, a country roughly the size of the state of Alaska with, with about 6 million people, had no serious military defenses, no CW, no chemical weapons, very little support in the region or in the international community, no serious air defense system. He points out that Libya happened in the heat and promise of the Arab Spring. The opposition movement to Muammar Gaddafi was cohesive and well-defined, not like what's happening in Syria. And the task, even with all of those you know, reasonably fortuitous circumstances, still took eight months to remove Muammar Gaddafi. Syria is a much more complicated case. And while both China and Russia didn't oppose NATO airstrikes in Libya, both adamantly reject airstrikes in Syria. And Syria itself has a more sophisticated air defense system than Libya. For that reason, the Obama administration was reluctant to commit military forces to this conflict in 2012. But as the war intensified and the number of dead and displaced rose, the administration came under mounting pressure for what critics say was inaction. And it was partly the success of the U.S.-led mission in Libya that caused people such as Arizona Republican Senator John McCain to criticize the U.S. policy on Syria last June. For us to sit by and watch these people being massacred, raped, tortured in the most uh, terrible fashion, meanwhile, the Russians are all in, Hezbollah is all in, and and we're talking about giving them more light weapons. I mean, it, it, it's insane. At that time, many of President Obama's critics wanted the U.S. to send large weapons to the Syrian opposition so they could defend themselves against the Assad regime and oust President Bashar al-Assad from power. Even some advocates of the responsibility to protect pushed for U.S. military involvement on humanitarian grounds. The next thing we could do is we could take out their air force, right? Through cruise missiles, through uh, air, we could actually make it much, much harder for him to use chemical weapons. Anne-Marie Slaughter is a former State Department official under the Obama administration, and she now heads the New America Foundation. She regrets that the U.S. did not act a year or two ago to put down the Assad regime with force or at least help arm the Syrian opposition. Slaughter's boss at the time, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and CIA Director David Petraeus, supported arming the rebels, but President Obama vetoed that idea. Speaking on CNN in May of last year, Anne-Marie Slaughter argued that the international powers could still act. Actually, I think it is possible to have a no-fly zone or to have safe zones. Ultimately, what we need to do here is tip the balance of power within Syria so that the people supporting Assad have a reason to come to the negotiating table. 
We do have to have a political settlement, but there is zero incentive for Assad and his people to actually negotiate. He's got Russia and Iran behind him, and we want him out. So we need to tip the balance of power. To intervene and stop the killing of civilians, she says, is a basic obligation that sovereign states now have under the responsibility to protect. It's a responsibility, she says, to protect citizens from genocide, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and grave and systematic war crimes. This intervening may not single-handedly change people's perception of us, but at least we will be able to say we stood for these principles and when the chips were down, we acted. That's a sentiment shared by other human rights advocates, as well as by Republican Senators Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and John McCain of Arizona. What the president did was he gave them a red line, but gave them a green light to do everything else. And if I sound a little emotional about this, it's because the news out of that country is horrific. Whatever Senator McCain or anyone else says, um, Anne-Marie Slaughter or any of the other Um, cheer squad for military action, um, I just can't see, and I don't think most observers can see, a way in which the dynamic can be changed by military action by the U.S. or anybody else at the moment. Former Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans is a key advisor to the Global Centre on the Responsibility to Protect, and like Anne-Marie Slaughter, he is a strong advocate for the Responsibility to Protect mandate. But Evans does not believe that we should intervene in Syria now. He says diplomacy is the best way to solve the crisis. That doesn't mean, I hasten to add, that the responsibility to protect has no application. And the tragedy of the Syrian case is that some of the lesser measures that might have made a real difference and given a very different set of signals to Assad in 2011, like condemnation by the Security Council, like sanctions, like the threat of international criminal court prosecution, uh, unfortunately, none of those um, strategies were applied because of, if you want to talk about it, the backlash, basically, that occurred against the perceived overreach of military action in Libya. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright agrees that the responsibility to protect is about much more than the use of force, and she wishes President Obama had acted earlier. She emphasizes that responsibility to protect means we have all tools available, such as preventative diplomacy, increased development aid, and economic sanctions. I think that people automatically think that we're going to militarily intervene somewhere. The, the military intervention part is the last step, not the first step. Albright, who's also on the board of this program, spoke last summer at a forum on the responsibility to protect at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. She notes that it's worked in smaller conflicts, like Libya and also Kenya. I think it's interesting in terms of Kenya, where in the... Um, The set of elections that took place in 2008 were led to a lot of violence, and then we were able to figure out how to get some international action in there to try to not only defuse the violence, but also uh, set up a procedure which allowed the next elections uh, to, and had an international negotiator, Kofi Annan, went in in order to do a lot of diplomatic work. It is this preventative action, she says, and the heeding of early warning signs that is at the heart of the responsibility to protect. And so what does that mean for Syria? The U.S. has been providing humanitarian assistance to Syrians, both inside and outside the country. And it's reported that the Obama administration has a covert program to deliver small arms and ammunition to Syrian rebels. But so far, it's not been enough to make much of a difference. 
We are seeing Syria turn into a failed state before our eyes. Michael O'Hanlon is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and an expert on America's military. He also agrees that something more should have been done earlier in Syria. But he argues that point from a different perspective. I'm still a little frustrated that we didn't do more in 2011 and 2012 when I think the odds of building on the momentum of the Arab Spring and the initial successes of the insurgency in Syria were uh, much more promising for getting rid of Assad. O'Hanlon says humanitarian concerns are important, but they don't override the United States' strategic interests in the region. I don't look at this strictly in humanitarian terms. I also look at it in terms of denying an ally of Iran and Hezbollah, that's President Assad, or an ally of al-Qaeda, that's al-Nusra, one of the insurgent groups, denying them greater power and sanctuary and ability to cause unrest in the broader Middle East and affect our strategic interests. That's just as important for me as the humanitarian angle, I have to confess. And I think, frankly, that's healthy to get that on the table. Is it morally wrong for a country to think about self-interest? I would say no, that's not morally wrong. Countries do have interests. Father J. Brian Hare is a professor at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. For 20 years, he's worked for the National Conference of Catholic Bishops. He directed their office on the church's role in international relations and foreign policy. He's thought a lot about the tension between morality and self-interest in international relations and what it means for the idea of the responsibility to protect. Intervention, he says, has unintended consequences, and those consequences can also be fraught with moral complications. For example, you don't want to break down all the boundaries in the Middle East, from Iraq to Egypt and from Jordan to Iran. You don't want to do that. At the same time, there are compelling moral reasons for things to be done regarding Syria. Now, The question is, who would do them, and how should they be done, and what would work? And uh, all those three questions are enough to keep us till dinner time anyway. Having the United States running around in and out of Islamic countries every other year using force is not regarded as a positive long-term policy. At the same time, uh, obviously, uh, you can get to the point where you can be regarded as being so careful that you are not fulfilling minimal standards. In essence, says Hare, the responsibility to protect modifies the working principles of world politics. It says there is sovereignty, sovereignty is legitimate, sovereignty is also limited. Under the notion of the responsibility to protect, the international community got involved in the sovereign affairs of Libya. Thousands of civilian lives were likely saved from the brutality of the Qaddafi regime, an achievement celebrated by supporters of humanitarian intervention. But now we are watching what has evolved since Qaddafi's death. Mark Danner writes for the New York Review of Books. He says arms that were in Qaddafi's arsenal found their way to the rebels in Syria. They're showing up in Egypt and among terrorist forces in Mali. Cela fait déjà plus d'une heure que les soldats maliens ripostent à des tirs des islamistes. So Libya has now become, in a sense, a source of instability uh, in other countries in the region. That certainly wasn't anticipated. And the situation there is very unstable. So on the one hand, the intervention in Libya seemed to be cost-free. But in fact, there have been a lot of consequences that were not anticipated. 
It's those unintended consequences that seem to be making the Obama White House very cautious with regards to the responsibility to protect in Syria, as well as the unintended consequences from two extremely costly and drawn-out wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Here's Mark Danner. I think there is an increasing exhaustion factor when it comes to the American public with foreign interventions. I think that's absolutely true. It's not simply exhaustion with foreign interventions. It's exhaustion and frustration when it comes to interventions that are sold as neat, quick, important actions like Iraq. In the Civil War, more than a million Syrians have fled Syria into Lebanon. Many just want stability and for life to return to normal. Among the refugees, there's a cry for intervention by the West. Ben Gilbert talked with some of them in Lebanon. Only first names have been used out of concern for the security of them and their families who remain in Syria. The Imam Uzai collective shelter is a half-complete four-story cement block building that sits on the outskirts of Lebanon's third largest city, Saida. 850 Syrian refugees live here, 60% of them children. One of the adults is 57-year-old Hajmutia. He's tall, and his skin is wrinkled and dark from years working as a construction worker. He doesn't understand why the United States won't at least act to protect civilians in Syria. America is the most powerful country in the world. It has an army from where it can hit anyone anywhere. It can destroy any nation from wherever it wants. So therefore, why this neglect? Are the Syrian people valueless? We've been bombed and hit with Scud missiles and killed for the past two years. Why do they do nothing? Upstairs, I'm introduced to a 22-year-old woman named Ghadi. She wears a brown hijab and square-rimmed glasses. She came here with eight other members of her family. She had just registered in a university to study French when the situation in Syria became unbearable. We did nothing wrong. We were in our homes, and they hit us and bombed us in our homes. Is this acceptable? All we demanded was our legitimate right. We were doing nothing. And now we're all over the place. My family is all over the globe, in Turkey, here, elsewhere. My mother and father, for example, are in Turkey. I have one brother who was wanted, and he's still stuck in Syria. I can't get him out. He's still there under the bombing and the shelling. I miss them all very much, and the world does not. Given the amount of people dead in Syria and the reports of torture and other atrocities there and the inaction on the part of the United States and other powers, where does that leave the responsibility to protect, also known as R2P? I have nothing but praise for the responsibility to protect movement. Military analyst at the Brookings Institution, Michael O'Hanlon. On the other hand, I'm struck that our invocation of that concept today is no more impressive than it was 20 years ago. If anything, we're a little slower in handling Syria than we had been in handling Bosnia. So frankly, I'm not sure responsibility to protect has achieved anything close to the kinds of outcomes that would have been hoped for. But even if it's contributing incrementally, that's still good. And sometimes you have to be happy with, or at least partially satisfied with, avoiding the worst outcomes rather than achieving the best outcomes. 
And the Council on Foreign Relations Senior Fellow Stuart Patrick wonders... If there are a number of repeated situations in which atrocities are massive um, and the international community stands by, then the RTP norm risks being so divergent from the reality of state practice and state conduct uh, that it begins to lose its credibility. And if a norm is never implemented, then it just simply appears to be window dressing uh, or cynically invoked on the odd occasion. Then that's a major problem. Patrick argues that the principle might best work in areas in which the geopolitical stakes for the United States are much lower. Mark Danner, who covered conflicts like Bosnia and Iraq for The New Yorker magazine, says that going forward, overall coordination for international humanitarian intervention will remain elusive. There isn't an international mechanism for intervention. You know, one could conceive of some kind of force under UN auspices that would reply to situations of clear genocide. But in fact, that force simply does not exist. Uh, There is no UN force. There are individual militaries around the world which lend forces to peacekeeping missions, blue helmet missions, under the auspices of the UN. And those peacekeeping missions, of course, are supposed to be exactly that. They're supposed to be keeping a peace that's been arrived at. So in effect, if indeed you have another genocide, some nation or combination of nations are going to have to decide to do something. But Father J. Brian Hare of Harvard argues that we as a world community have made progress in discussing how to avert or stop humanitarian crises. It would have been very hard to have that kind of discussion 25 years ago. So the fact that it is commonly accepted as a discussion that needs to be going on in states, among states, at the UN is all to the good. Secondly, I don't think, uh, at least in my judgment, that responsibility to protect has become customary international law. It is still in tension with the classical sovereignty non-intervention principle. Former State Department analyst John Western goes further in supporting the idea of the responsibility to protect. It's premised on the right set of ideas. Everybody agrees on the core values that we should stop genocide and prevent genocide. Um, So it's not going to go away. The question is how to better institutionalize it. And here I think, you know, looking at, for example, the Brazilians who are very upset about uh, the way in which NATO used uh, the R2P and UN Security Council resolution in Libya to overthrow the regime of Muammar Gaddafi. Rather than abandon R2P, uh, the Brazilians went back to the table and said, how do we make it better? And uh, they developed uh, this concept called responsibility while protecting, RWP which basically creates a new institutional mechanisms, and we're still debating it in the international community. And that debate is sure to persist as new conflicts emerge, pulling us between our strategic interests and our moral imperative to protect. This hour was written and edited by Martha Little and produced by Samantha Fields and Jacob Conrad, with additional production help from Anjali Patel and Timothy Olmsted. Ben Gilbert contributed reporting from Lebanon. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. 
Support for this show is provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by the Stewart Family Foundation and by Turkish Airlines. PRI, Public Radio International.